The Lord be with you. A reading of the Holy Gospel according to Luke. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in our series, Ignite the Fire, we've again been looking at who God is. God is the fire. And so we're looking at what He does then in our lives as the fire, right? The fire gives light, we heard week one. Last week, Pastor Davis talked to us about how the fire gives heat and warmth to our soul. I mean, look up on the screen right now, it looks like a big fireplace up there, right? And cold February morning, like, oh, yeah. But the fire is also dangerous, right? I mean, fire burns. And when you look through the Scriptures, most of the references to the fire of God are about His wrath and His anger and His punishment, His jealousy, even the fires of hell. And to our modern sensibilities, that kind of offends us, right? No, wait, man, God is love. But if we mean by that that God is permissible, that He just lets us do whatever we want to do, even if it hurts us or or harms somebody else, then that would not be love. God's love is fierce. Deuteronomy chapter 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. As we heard Isaiah the prophet say, I will not give my glory to another. I won't give my love or share my love with some other false God. I am a jealous God. So then what we do is we start to think of God, well, He's sort of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? I mean, sometimes God's all lovey, and then other times God is a hot, raging, angry mess, and we don't know which one we're going to get. But see, the truth is that the, the fire of God's wrath is actually the corollary of the fire of His love. It's like the other side of the very same coin. And I think we get that, right? If you've ever given your love to someone and that love was rejected or abused or betrayed, where does it leave you? Hurt? Angry? Angry because you gave love and your love has now been offended. The fire of God's wrath is not simply Him just wanting to punish us and give revenge for what we've done. It's the fire of His love. It's the fire of His love that wants to forge us into something better. If you don't know the Lord of the Rings, then the whole story kind of revolves around a magical ring. This ring has this amazing power to it. It incites 
in whoever holds it, whoever possesses it, this sort of insatiable lust for its power. They never want to let go. But the ring in its magic sort of begins to change and corrupt the person. And as the story goes, the virtuous hobbit named Frodo is tasked with taking this menacing ring to Mount Doom where he's going to then cast it into the fire and destroy it. And as Frodo takes this journey, he himself struggles with the lure of this ring. Now, many years before this, there was another hobbit named Schmeagel. Schmeagel once possessed the ring. In fact, he killed another hobbit to have it. And then Schmeagel loses the ring. And, and so he's constantly trying to get it back. And it's, it has such a spell over him, it literally begins to change him into another person named Gollum. And you can see in the picture this, the, even the change in how he began to look. Gollum wants the ring back, and he's even willing to kill Frodo for it. Well, fast forward to the end when, when Frodo and, and his friend Sam finally make it to Mount Doom. But as he is about ready to cast the ring into the fire, he succumbs to its power. Even good Frodo takes the ring and he puts it on to keep it as his own. And then Gollum comes and attacks him. And the two of them begin to scuffle. And, and, and they fall over the edge towards the fire. Gollum falls into the fire in fact, the last scene, at least in the movie, is that Gollum is falling into the fire, clinging and clutching the ring as he goes. Frodo is hanging on to the edge for dear life until his good friend Sam comes and saves him. And the ring finally falls into the lava and melts away and is destroyed. But Frodo is saved, but only through the fire. And all of our readings point to this today. You see, whatever in us is not love, whatever in us keeps us from love, from being that true gift of yourself, sincere and complete to God and to other people, then it must be burned up. Whatever that is, it has to be burned up. And in the end, if I am not love, then I will be thrown into the fire. Despite what our modern world wants to think, there is a hell. There is a place for those who refuse to love. A final judgment of fire and wrath. And we know that hell is true. All we have to do is look at the cross. There Jesus experienced the fires of hell. The wrath and the judgment of God. Why? Because, see, He took upon Himself everything in us that's not love. He took our sins upon Himself and He went there to immolate them. To destroy them. And then what comes through the fire? He does. The pure and the holy one who now reaches out to us to purify us. It's why, friends, we have got to go to his cross, to the fire of his cross. It's why the season of Lent, which is starting in just a week and a half, it calls us year after year to repentance. We must go and we must repent. We must burn up whatever is not love in us. It's got to go. Or as the Scriptures, you heard different images, the chaff, the dross, the straw, whatever's worthless in us, it has got to be burned up because, see, God wants to forge us into something much better. Put it this way. 
You have to take iron ore. If you want to purify it, you've got to put it to the fire. And only then can you then forge it and form it into steel. And see, you are made to be that. You are made to be a man of steel, a superman. You're made to be God's man. And your dear bride sitting next to you, Danielle, you are made to be a woman of steel. Superwoman. God's woman. Every one of you. But see, this is precisely why our Lord gives us the sacrament of confession and absolution. Such a great gift. But of course, it's not a lot of fun, right? I mean, going to confession is never fun. It hurts. It hurts our pride and our ego when we've got to humble ourselves and admit to ourselves, to our pastor, and even most importantly, to admit to God that I did this absolutely despicable thing. And it hurts because sometimes you feel like a part of you is dying when you're letting go of that sin that you have been clinging to for so long that it seems like it's a part of you and you just can't let go. But see, when the fire of his love and his forgiveness comes and he burns all of that sin away from us, what's left? You are. You you are refined and, and purified, forged into something so much better. I'm telling you, friends, if we would, if we would just incinerate our greed, think of how it would stoke such a fire of generosity. If we would scorch our pride and our ego, the blaze of kindness that we would start. If we would torch the angry rage within us, think of the warmth we would give to others, the peace and the calm. And then there's our lust, right? I mean, there's a fire that burns within strong and powerful and, and thrilling. Actually, it's weak and it's pathetic and it's selfish. You see, here's the thing. We are afraid that if we let go of our lusts, like all of these other things, if we let go of our lusts, then we're going to lose our desire. No, exactly the opposite. I want to finish by sharing with you a, a portion of a story C.S. Lewis wrote. It's called The Great Divorce. And in this story, C.S. Lewis imagines what it would be like if souls in hell could actually go and visit heaven. And he calls them ghosts because they're sort of a, a ghost of the person they're supposed to be. So all of these souls travel on a bus to heaven, and as they get to heaven, the sad thing is that most of them decide they're going to go back to hell. They don't want to stay. But towards the end of the story, as the narrator is telling the story, there is one of these ghosts, and this ghost has a little red lizard on his shoulder, which symbolizes his lust. So as I read this story to you, what I'd like you to do is think about, what's my little red lizard? It might be your lust, it might be something else. But I want you to listen, I want you to see what happens, and hear about what's possible for you. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder, a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. The ghost turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. 
The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body, too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light like the morning sun. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, and here he pointed at the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now! I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me? Because before I knew, it would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? I'll be so good. I admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Bless you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back on the turf. Oh, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. 
Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. And at first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off because before I knew well what was happening, they were riding. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were like a shooting star far off on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves, into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. Do you understand all of this, my son, said my teacher? I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse? Yes, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, everything that is in us, can go on to the mountains? Nothing, not even the best and the noblest, can go on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will, be, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Lord, if that's your fire, burn, baby, burn. Burn, Lord, burn. 